1: Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick, and it's Saturday. The vault
0: hangs open, and of course, today's vault episode is more than a regular vault episode. It is
1: a cosmic odyssey. That's right. We are going to meet Jupiter's children. The Galilean moons. The Jovian offspring. I, I don't have another synonym. <laughs> the moons of Jupiter. Yes. Yeah. We will go there. Yeah, it's like its own solar system, uh, and and each one is just a fascinating literally otherworldly destination.
0: We can't wait till you get to the end and experience the fiery plains of Io.
3: Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com.
0: It really is darker out here in the outer solar system. Your space freighter's one remaining forest dome struggles, but barely scrapes along, surviving. The plants still put out leaves. It seems only yesterday that you defied orders to jettison the dome and return to Earth immediately. But instead, you absconded. You took the plant life capsule, and you flew away, away from the sun, out into the outer solar system. You have only the forest and a pair of robots now to accompany you through this long twilight.
1: You'd hope to pass beyond Jupiter and find refuge within the rings of Saturn. But the great gas giant will not be defied. Its massive gravity tugs at your humble freighter. The red eye of its century-spanning storm taunts you as Jupiter drags you into the orbital realm of its many moons. But still there's hope. Perhaps one of the four greater moons, the Galilean moons, will offer some place of refuge. But which
0: of these strange and hostile worlds might serve as a new home for you and this geodesic refugium from old Earth's lost biodiversity?
1: Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is
0: Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And you should imagine yourself in the scenario we just described. You're in some kind of spacecraft, uh, hopefully one that has some some plants along with it to keep you sustained through the long outer solar system journey. And no hostile Xenomorphs on board. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, and you are caught in the gravitational influence of the planet Jupiter. You didn't mean to end up this way, but, hey, you know, Jupiter's gravity is something that's difficult to escape. And now now you're stuck spiraling in towards Jupiter – slowly decaying in your orbit, getting closer and closer all the time. But one thing you have noticed is that you will get to see a close-up view, and perhaps, if you're lucky enough, maybe land on Jupiter's four largest moons, known as the Galilean moons. This is the tour we want to take you on today. Indeed. These moons are, of course, of immense interest
1: to science
0: Now, one analogy that I think is interesting to help us understand the way the Jupiter system and its gravitational influence uh, works is to think of Jupiter kind of like a star within our solar system. Like it's its own star and the planet, the uh, moons that are going around Jupiter are kind of like planets orbiting this solar system within a solar system. Indeed,
1: because it is a massive planet. Uh, Its mass is 317.828 times that of Earth. And uh, it's, of course, a gas giant. It's mostly gas, but it might have a solid core about the size of Earth uh, at the center, possibly a rocky ice-covered core with insane levels of atmospheric pressure and temperatures hotter than the surface of the sun. And Jupiter features no fewer than sixty-seven lunar objects. That includes fifty confirmed moons, and seventeen unconfirmed or provisional moons. Yeah, and these are the ones we know about. Yeah, uh, but yeah, and th- they've got cool names like Metis and and Drostia. And then, of course, there's also the um, uh, th- there are also three faint gossamer rings around Jupiter as well. Certainly not as robust as uh, Saturn's rings, but they're there nonetheless. So we should back up and start at the beginning because we're learning a whole lot
0: more about Jupiter's moons, especially Jupiter's Galilean moons, the ones we're going to focus on today, the Mm -hmm. four largest moons. Uh, But we're learning a lot more about that recently. But we've known about Jupiter since ancient times because you don't need a telescope to
1: see Jupiter. That's right. It's visible from Earth. And so it factors into many ancient systems of astrology by virtue virtue of that cosmology, Uh, the Roman name. Jupiter stems from the king of the gods, uh, but the planet uh, plays a role in many cultural beliefs. In uh, Chinese astrology, for instance, it's the uh, the character of Fu. Uh, the character of Fu is tied to Jupiter, and he's, no. the, embodiment, Who is Fu? Oh, he's the embodiment of good fortune, uh, symbolized in a scholar's dress, and he's cradling a child. It's huh. one of the, uh, the three stars that you'll often see. You'll often see these three statues of these men. Uh, in Chinese households, Chinese businesses, uh, and they each kind of they each represent a different form of uh, of idealized uh, success. So one is old and wise one one is a successful with his family, and the other one is successful with business.
0: I always think it's interesting that we see this cross cultural phenomenon of associating planetary bodies or objects in the sky with gods.
1: Yeah, it's fascinating because uh, you you see this in other systems as well. For instance, the Vedic astrology. Uh, Jupiter is everything from the dwarf incarnation of Vishnu to uh, to Ganesha or sometimes Brahma. So it it, it varies w- within that system. But yeah, the Jupiter always seems to have a pretty cushy role within uh, a given uh, a given culture's astrology.
0: Yeah. So we mentioned that ancient cultures knew about Jupiter because you can see it with the naked eye. But one of the things they didn't know was much more about Jupiter other than it being a point of light.
1: That's right. Uh, for instance, when we think of Jupiter, what do you, what do we picture? We picture that big, uh, big gas giant with a big red eye, right? The Red spot, yeah. yeah. The giant red hurricane on
0: Jupiter's outer surface.
1: Yeah, like, I, it, it's great to focus in on on the red storm because it helps us really understand Jupiter and our <laughs> our relationship to Jupiter. Because for one, on one hand, that storm has not been there forever, uh, and it will not be there forever. But it spans centuries. It's been there as long as we've been able to see Jupiter in that kind of detail. Uh, and it and the storm itself is two to three times the size of Earth, uh, so <laughs> that helps put again the massive scale of Jupiter. Can you uh, imagine if, in reference. if on Earth we had storms that lasted for I don't know hundreds of years? Yeah, I've I've thought about it. Like when you start teasing apart our weather system and you start l- looking at the different. Uh, uh, the different systems involved there and the, and the, the different factors that end up uh, uh, decreasing a hurricane's power. You know, what if those were not mm-hmm. there? What if you had a scenario where the storm was essentially just a permanent part of the planet as a, a, a mortal uh, individual would experience it? You know that would be a great setup for like a,
0: a sci-fi thriller. Imagine the weather conditions on Earth change that uh, such that tornadoes tend not to dissipate on their own. Unless you have to, you have to find a way to essentially
1: dissipate tornadoes by force. Yeah, <laughs> indeed. And that that red storm on Jupiter is dissipating slowly, but it's still there as of this recording. Uh, now, as far as how far away Jupiter is, it's four hundred eighty-four million miles. 778 million kilometers or 5.2 astronomical units uh, from the planet Earth. OK, so we know Jupiter is a gas giant,
0: but you always wonder what's inside a gas giant. I mean, is it all just gas or is
1: is there something solid inside there? Well, we don't know for certain. Uh, yeah. We uh, the, the atmosphere of Jupiter is mostly hydrogen and helium, but it might have a solid core uh, about the size of Earth. And uh this might be an icy covered core with just really insane levels of atmospheric pressure and temperatures hotter than the surface of the sun. So it's very much the core and not, you know, not the surface of the planet. But uh but, it, you know, you can't help but imagine, well, what if what if you could what if you could transport yourself down to the the physical surface of this gas world? Uh huh it would, of course, be just unimaginable. <laughs> one of the most you know, hostile environments you could even envision uh, in the solar system.
0: Yeah, it's pretty rough. And one of the things that's going to come up repeatedly, I think, today is how Jupiter, though it may look very serene and beautiful to us, mm. is it it kind of meets that uh, analogy I worked out at the beginning about it being like a star, because Jupiter is... It has massive gravitational influence. It's very uh, electrically active and it's just it's just full of radiation. Mm -hmm. You don't want to go near Jupiter.
1: Right. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. To be sucked into Jupiter would be. To be sucked into death, really, and yeah. that's one of the things we were we we're outlying in the uh, the intro material.
0: Yeah, so it's really unfortunate that we're slowly spiraling into Jupiter in today's thought experiment. But but
1: we we should at least take the time to appreciate the sights we'll see along the way. That's right, and uh, and and maybe if we're lucky, <laughs> grasp onto them and uh, and seek refuge, uh, refuge upon them. Because even though they are all very hostile worlds in their own right, uh, they're still a better bargain, and they still present a better chance uh, for not only the potential, like the real life potential for for human visitation, but in some of these cases, we'll discuss the possibility for extraterrestrial
2: life.
0: Yeah. Okay, now Jupiter is not entirely unexplored today. We've actually sent quite a few probes Jupiter's way that have, uh, that have orbited Jupiter and made
1: various observations about it and its major satellites, right? That's right. To date, NASA has sent nine space missions uh, to or by the gas giant. So we're talking the Pioneer program, 73 and 74, the Voyager program, 79, uh, Ulysses in 92, uh, Cassini in 2000, New Horizons in uh, 2007, uh also Galileo is a big one, uh and that's uh ninety-five through two thousand three. Juno, that one's of course uh, uh very current. That's two thousand sixteen. And uh there are various additional missions and schemes for missions in the works. Oh yeah, I know the ESA is working on
0: the uh the Juice Explorer, right? The, oh, yes. the Jupiter icy moon explorer, which I, I don't know I, I don't know if I agree with the wisdom of calling it juice.
1: It's it seems just a little too cool, like like it's like it, the name doesn't need to be that cool because it's going to Jupiter. Exactly. You know, it's going to the moons of Jupiter. That alone is is just mind bending.
0: Yeah. And so hopefully it's going to explore uh, three of the four main moons we're going to talk about today, the icy moons, of uh, the icy Galilean moons of Jupiter. And it's launching in 2022. Right.
1: Yeah. I believe that's the current plan. And NASA is currently putting together the uh, Europa multiple flyby mission for the same time period. All right. So I mentioned earlier thinking about the Jupiter system
0: like a solar system within a solar system. And if you do that, of course, you've got lots of bodies out there. We mentioned the 67 known satellites of Jupiter, things that are orbiting. But a lot of them are very small. If we do think about Jupiter like a solar system, it has
1: four main planets. That's right. Uh, they stand out the most due to they're just their sheer size. And these are Callisto, Ganymede, Europa, and Io. <laughs> so you can think of them as, as four scoops on a, on a Jovian ice cream cone. Okay. Um, and you will get the following flavors of scoops. You'll get salty craters, magnets, ice, and, of course, lava.
0: Ah, uh, lava. That's a good flavor. Now, Robert, did you know that you seem to be – you're a fan of ice cream metaphors. I things.
1: do. I, I – use them when thinking about planets i use yeah. them when thinking about uh, the brain so yeah is
0: this a good way of explaining things to children did they just really grasp onto ice cream metaphors
1: you know i don't know i guess it's a good way to explain it to the the child within um yeah i mean maybe it comes back to sort of like a sesame street uh, mentality you know like i grew up watching these visual representations and it seems like it seems like there were more than one sesame street skit that had ice cream in them so maybe that that Ended up sticking.
0: I guess that does make sense. But it is interesting to think about the flavors of each of these moons because mm-hmm. they kind of do each have their own flavor, especially the inner two, I think.
1: Yes. Yeah. Each one is is its own weird world with its own properties, its own unique landscape. And uh, that's why uh, we wanted to take our listeners uh, on a journey through each one.
0: Now one thing we should mention about all of these worlds that's kind of different than most of the inner planets of the solar system that we think about that have like a soul, uh, you know, a solar rotational day is that all of these moons are tidally locked with Jupiter. The same side of the moon always faces in toward Jupiter.
1: Yes, almost like they're completely obedient. They dare not look away from their uh their master. Right, yeah. Or or it's
0: kind of like in uh, in Mario, you know, they're afraid to turn their back on the ghost cuz that's when the ghost comes to get you. <laughs> So we mentioned that these are referred to as the Galilean moons, and we should probably explain first how they were discovered and why they're called the Galilean moons today. The the obvious conclusion you might reach is that they're named after Galileo. You know, he's an astronomer. And if you assumed that, you'd be right. That's where the name comes from.
1: That's right. And I think most of you are probably familiar, at least a little bit, with uh, uh, Italian astronomer slash heretic. Galileo Galilei, who was born in 1564, died in 1642, and he was a true Renaissance man uh, in the Renaissance. Yeah. He was also uh, a physicist, an engineer, a philosopher, a mathematician, a true superstar in the history of science and really in the history of human civilization uh, in general. It's really... It's really difficult to to overstate the importance, the importance of Galileo.
0: Yeah. I mean, often today, scientific struggles against ingrained orthodoxy are framed in terms of Galileo's struggle against the, uh, the scientific and religious orthodoxy of the day, both of which opposed him.
1: Yeah. Well, tell our uh, listeners a little more about the controversy surrounding heliocentrism. All right. Yeah. Well, so you'll probably
0: associate Galileo with heliocentrism. The idea that the planets in the solar system go around the sun uh, could have also in the day in the at the time meant that everything in the universe goes around the sun. Of course, now we know that's not correct. Yeah, we were still very much working our way outward. Yeah. Uh, and our understanding of the universe. But it was certainly on to something in the idea that the Earth goes around the sun and not the other way around, the Earth and all the other bodies in the solar system. And so Galileo did not come up with the idea of heliocentrism. He didn't invent this. This was a Copernican idea. It was already in circulation. And Galileo was one of the Copernican astronomers of the 17th century. Uh, however, a version of the geocentric Aristotelian Ptolemaic model Was what was dominant in the day It was what most people believed and in this model, the earth is it's not just that the sun goes around the earth, and the moon goes around the earth and all that it's that the earth is literally the center of motion in the universe. So by uh, by a principle that centers on the Earth, the whole universe just goes all goes around us. So we're what everything else is focused on. And the role of Galileo's discovery is that in observing the sphere of Jupiter's gravitational influence, Galileo provided new evidence against that type of geocentrism that dominated in his day. Uh, and one one piece of evidence became apparent in January 1610 when Galileo made his first round of observations through a telescope looking at Jupiter so Galileo also, like not inventing heliocentrism, did not invent the telescope. But what he did do was improved it. Uh, he made a series of improvements to a design of the telescope that allowed him to resolve farther objects than ever before. And by the time Galileo got the magnification power of his telescope cranked up to 20 times, he aimed it at the planet Jupiter and he saw something really weird. Now, as we mentioned earlier, you can see Jupiter with the naked eye, right? Right. Yes. Yeah. And so uh, ancient astronomers had been seeing Jupiter for a a long time. They're already aware of its existence. But what Galileo saw when he focused on Jupiter was interesting. He saw stars. He saw three stars lined up right next to Jupiter, almost as if strung along a spear extending out through Jupiter's equator. Hmm. So Galileo made a note of this and he decided to check back on it later. Uh, now, if those had been stars that were just in the background, you know, if they just happened to line up with Jupiter from the star field beyond, the next time you looked at Jupiter, they shouldn't be there, right? Because Jupiter should have moved on relative to the background star field.
1: Right. They shouldn't be following the planet because there would be distant objects beyond Exa- the planet.
0: Exactly. But instead, the stars followed Jupiter. Where Jupiter went, the spear of stars followed. And they changed their positions relative to Jupiter. Wow! And so after some observations, Galileo realized that there are actually four stars on this spear, not just three. And the conclusion he realized was that these weren't stars. The star spear was not a star spear. It was a moon spear. These are moons that are orbiting Jupiter the same way Earth's moon orbits the Earth. And so, okay, well, so Jupiter has moons. What does that mean for the cosmological debate of the day? Well, if there are moons orbiting Jupiter, it disproves the Aristotelian principle that Earth is the universal hub of motion of planetary bodies. Those moons don't orbit the Earth. They orbit something else. Mm -hmm. And so this gives you a kind of general principle of things orbiting things rather than everything orbiting Earth. And it's clear that there's more than one center of motion possible. There are at least two now that we know of, Jupiter and Earth. And if there are two, you can assume there are probably more than two. And this eventually led to the type of thinking that showed us what was really out there in terms of of heliocentrism and the way gravity works. Now, I should also add that uh, the discovery of Jupiter's moons wasn't unique to galileo and he wasn 't even necessarily the only or first person to have discovered them. I found accounts that at least one other guy, a German astronomer named Simon Marius discovered them independently at around the same time. And it's also been suggested that an ancient Chinese astronomer named Gan Dei might have discovered one of the moons of Jupiter in the 4th century BCE, uh, when he, he said that he saw around Jupiter a small red star. Now, technically, under the right circumstances, the moons of Jupiter should be visible to the naked eye from Earth. And the only thing that really prevents it is that Jupiter's too bright. You look up at Jupiter and it's, uh, it's so bright that it drowns out other tiny points of light that are close to it. So you can't usually see them. But if Jupiter weren't there, you should be able to see these objects. Oh, but you know what? I think that sound means that we're coming up on Jupiter's first Galilean moon spiraling in from the outside. And that's going to be the moon Callisto.
1: Yes. And I think this is, this is a pretty good pit stop to consider. So Callisto. Callisto is about the size of the planet Mercury. Mm-hmm. It's the third largest moon in the entire solar system and it's the uh, outermost of the four Galilean moons as we've discussed. Uh it and it orbits beyond Jupiter's main radiation belts.
0: Yeah. Okay. So J- Jupiter is highly radioactive. It's yes. putting out a, a lot of scary stuff, but Callisto's far enough away that it's relatively safe.
1: That's right. Yeah, we're we're outside of that <laughs> <laughs> that, that, that deathly zone. The death zone. Yeah. yeah, it's also the most heavily cratered object in the solar system. Oh, so, that's interesting. Yeah, this is this is really fascinating. So as we as we as we we get closer and closer, as we're able to observe the surface of Callisto, and maybe I mean hopefully even get out, even land our vessel and find a uh, a semi permanent home. On this, uh, this, this strange moon, uh, you would find that the surface of, to to walk the surface of Callisto would be to walk a dead landscape of craters and occasional small icy peaks. And this surface, this landscape has not changed in four billion years. Yeah, that's one
0: of the things that we often Mm -hmm. associate having heavy cratering with, right? Like the more cratering you see, the older the surface is because what does cratering mean? It's been like
1: that a long time without any kind of repaving. That's right. This was The last time Callisto suffered any extensive resurfacing was four billion years ago. And uh, there are no plate uh, tectonics. There are no volcanoes, uh, no like, active geology to alter the landscape. So um, it seems like a kind of quiet, serene... Dead. Yeah, I mean, it's like a dinosaur world, right? It's, uh, the, the moon itself is only 4.5 billion years old. And again, it hasn't changed in 4 billion. Um, it's also the darkest of the four moons that we're discussing here and the least uh, dense. So Callisto's composition is about half water ice and half rocky material. And the mean surface temperature of Callisto is negative 218.47 degrees Fahrenheit. And the thin atmosphere consists of mostly carbon dioxide.
0: Okay, so it may be very quiet and serene on this on this seemingly dead rock, but should we take away from that that Callisto is definitely not
1: a place to look for signs of life? Well, I think we've both watched enough science fiction to know that that world that you land on that seems dead is never – it's not always really that dead. I have a sidetrack to take here. Okay. Do you notice
0: how in science fiction, whenever you land on a planet – that does turn out to have hostile aliens on it. You never land where the aliens are doing something right then. <laughs> you always land in somewhere where there's no sign of them, and it's only after exploring for a while that you run into them.
1: Yeah, it would be it would be interesting to have that uh, story where the ship touches down and all the hideous night creatures are already out, you know, yeah. viciously, killing the ape creatures that live there during the day.
0: I like how the the
1: viciously killing motion you made was like lopping with shears. Yeah, like I'm thinking like two big old pincher arms that are just <laughs> for stabbing apes. Um, yeah. So we're
0: not thinking about big pincher arms on Callisto, but no. there might be something to look for here, right?
1: That's right. D- surprisingly, for a world that we've described in these terms, you know, as just being this dead crater landscape, uh, there is some talk of life on or more specifically, within Callisto, specifically the possibility of an electric, salty subsurface ocean. Hmm. So you're probably wondering, well, where do we where do we dream up this idea? Yeah. How do you, who, sa- who who says? Yeah, because you could say, you, couldn't you say that about any world? Like, oh, well, maybe there's a ocean beneath Mercury. No, it's yeah, a there's more a
0: life on the moon. Come on, <laughs> it's those spiders from that. What's that horrible movie?
1: A horrible movie with spiders. Pick one. <laughs> it's a rich. <laughs> Rich tapestry. <laughs> no, okay, sorry. Who, who said this about Callisto? Well, this comes from Dr. Krishan K. Karana of UCLA and his colleagues who examined Galileo's measurements. Not, not Galileo the scientist, but Galileo the spacecraft that we mentioned earlier. Yeah. Uh, they, they examined uh, Galileo's measurements of Callisto's magnetic field. And they noticed that the magnetic field fluctuated in time with Jupiter's rotation. Okay, so what does that mean? Mm -hmm. It means that Jupiter's powerful magnetic field was creating electrical currents inside of Callisto. And those currents in turn created a fluctuating magnetic field around Callisto. Now for that to happen, you need a conductor. Mm-hmm. And that thin uh, uh, atmosphere, craterscape that we touched on earlier, that's just not going to cut it. What would work, however, is a salty layer of melted ice down there, a subsurface ocean. Electrolytes. Yeah. It's what alien life cra- craves. Yeah, a, a, a subworld Gatorade ocean, if you will. So cautiously, very cautiously, there is the potential for extremophile life Within this uh, theorized subsurface ocean, there's liquid water, perhaps salty. There's energy, so we'd be talking micro. If, if we were to you know consider life using our only model of it, which is Earth life, uh, we'd be talking microorganisms like archaea bacteria, salt loving bacteria. There wouldn't be any gigantic electronic uh, moon whales. There wouldn't be any uh, certainly no you know mandible ape-stabbing creatures. Uh, but of co- And, of course, it would also be very cold, and the, the ocean would only be heated by radioactive elements. Okay. So it's a very, 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 very hostile environment that we're picturing here, but based on our understanding of life on Earth, it would not be impossible for something to have evolved and and even thrive there still.
0: Yeah, and though we do want to point out that when we think about what hostile to life is, we're thinking about hostile to Earth life. Right. And of course, the Earth environment might be incredibly hostile to organisms adapted to some other kind of uh, world. So, like, you know, on Earth, on Earth, we have oxygen mm-hmm. an oxygen atmosphere. Oxygen is nice to us because we're adapted to it, but it could be highly corrosive to some other type of
1: organism. Yeah, indeed. So, you know, with all of this, it's it's relative based on our human perspective and our, our preference for all things uh, that support human life. Now as far as uh, exploration goes, we've uh, we've had nothing Callisto specific in the past, uh, but most missions to or by Jupiter involve some level of Callisto study. I mean you're 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 swinging by, it's in the neighborhood, it's one of the four largest moons. You're you're going to get some data off of it.
0: Now, I know we mentioned earlier the juice. the juice. The Juice is thinking about studying icy moons of Jupiter and
1: that would include Callisto, right? Indeed. And then as far as considering any kind of far future visitation or specific study there, NASA's 2003 Human Outer Space Exploration, or HOPE, uh, project suggested that in a hypothetical 2045 Jovian mission, uh, Callisto could serve as a base of operations uh, for study of Jupiter, uh, and as well as other you know outer solar system concerns uh, thanks to its stable geology and low radiation so again yeah nothing's changing there are no earthquakes there are no volcanoes and you're outside of that death zone for the most part so it would be a great place to um, to uh, uh, to teleoperate, uh, say a Europa submarine, we're we'll going to do Europa in a little bit, a little bit, or uh, or other Galilean moon explorations. It could also serve as a way station for outward bound vessels.
0: I think that teleoperation idea is very interesting in the future of space exploration because mm-hmm. one of the things you often run into in space exploration is. Well, okay. When you've got a job that's very dangerous and and uh, requires an extremely hardy explorer, you think, okay, we need a robot, right? right? But then, when you've got a job that requires quick thinking and adaptability, you think you need a human explorer because, I mean, a robot's not going to be able to figure out how to get around a problem very easily if you didn't anticipate it in advance. And a good way I've heard of of bridging this gap is having teleoperated robots. Mm-hmm. So instead of putting a human on the surface of europa you have a human in some nearby vessel in a you know spacecraft orbiting europa or some, or nearby on callisto maybe and they are essentially by by avatar type of control making a robot do what it needs to do but also being able to adapt to unexpected
1: conditions and problems so you send a robot to europa and you send maybe like a human brain in a scream canister to Callisto to <laughs> yeah. remote control the, uh, the the robot in Europa. I feel like after reading about Callisto, though, I kind of felt bad for Callisto reading this proposal because I'm like, you landed on Callisto. Callisto's cool. Callisto's fascinating. Don't get to Callisto and then dream of Europa. That's kind of inconsiderate. That's like you're, you're hanging out with this friend. Don't text that one, the, the other one, during the hangout.
0: Uh, but, I mean, what if this other friend you're texting is just way more likely to have life on them? It's true. It's true. <laughs> Okay, I think we're going to take a break, but when we come back, we're going to get into the three inner Galilean moons where things really start to get interesting.
1: Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples.
0: Rob, as the uh, the local host with allergies here, they sent you some of their nasal spray. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Okay,
2: picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or...
1: All right, we're back. We've left Callisto. We've left that uh, dead, cratered world and its uh, potential salt ocean hidden beneath its surface. Uh, w- what is our next destination in our journey?
0: Well, our next destination isn't going to be all that different from Callisto in many respects. So we we left one cold, icy, rocky world, and we're headed to another cold, icy, rocky world. But this one is Ganymede. Now what are the basic stats on Ganymede? Ganymede is about uh, in diameter, about 3,273 miles across or 5,268 kilometers. This makes it the largest moon in orbit around Jupiter and not just there. In fact, it's the largest moon in the entire solar system. Ah. It's bigger than Pluto, bigger than the planet Mercury, but not nearly as massive due to low density composition. So, You take an interior cross-section of this planet. imagine you could shear away half of it and look at an interior profile. You've got an iron core, Mm kind of like Earth has, but it's also possibly partially molten iron, and that's important for something I'm going to get to in a second. Then around that iron core, you've got a layer of rocky inner mantle uh, that's uh, like silicate rock, standard rock. And then around that is a layer of water ice, uh, probably also some salty liquid water. And then finally on top, you've got an ice crust that shows signs of age, craters and scarring. So the molten metal in the iron core is probably why Ganymede has its own magnetosphere like Earth. And, and the fact that it has its own magnetosphere is interesting. A lot of objects in the solar system
1: don't. Right. Uh, don't have a magnetic shield that extends outward from the planet. Which makes uh, possible visitation to those worlds all the more problematic. Yeah. So I'm thinking this, I mean, we missed Callisto. This one sounds like a good place to touch down. What's it like on the surface?
0: Okay. Well, let's take a little tour of the surface of Ganymede. First of all, you're going to notice it has a thin oxygen atmosphere, but the emphasis is on thin. It's not thick enough that you could breathe it, but there is going to be a little bit of gas around there. And imagine you you step out of the spacecraft, say, on Ganymede. So you're walking on ice. The crust of the planet is ice. It's this dark, endless plain of ice, possibly with some rocky elements here and there, but mostly it's going to be ice. It's like a frozen pond extending over the whole planet.
1: Okay. So bring ice skates.
0: Maybe. Actually, I wonder, you know, if – so – Ice is slippery here on Earth. Is, oh, is yeah, ice yeah. slippery on Ganymede? I have no idea why I would even wonder that. I would have to assume the physics are somewhat similar, but maybe not.
1: I mean, it depends. Yeah, there's. it's easy to take for granted something like ice skating, but ice skating... It, it, Going to depend on, um, on on what the gravity's like on the world, right?
0: Yeah, yeah, gravity and the uh, the surface conditions. Now, one thing actually, I think, is that ice is less slippery the colder it gets outside, mm-hmm. right? Like in extremely cold conditions, you're less likely to slip on the ice.
1: I feel like the novel, The Forever War, went into this a little bit. I believe like there's a section where he was getting into like the physics of being a visitor to an icy world and how slippery it would be. But it's been a long time since I've read that. We'll have to hear from listeners.
0: Yeah, I would like to hear if you have ideas about that. But anyway, you're out on this ice crust. And one thing you can notice is that you can, as you travel the surface of Ganymede, move from different kinds of landscapes uh, into one another. So Ganymede has interlocking sections of an old face and a young face. Both are made of ice, but the old face is dark, covered in ancient craters from impacts over billions of years. It's what we talked about earlier. You know, Mm -hmm. the more craters you see on a surface, typically the older it is because it's been there to absorb blows from the, the shooting gallery of the solar system for a longer
1: period of time. Yeah, beware of those planets where you don't see craters everywhere. Because we live
0: something's on. <laughs> happening there. yeah. Uh, the, the craters on, on Ganymede, I've read, are actually relatively smooth and gentle. And this possibly might be from millions of years of ice settling. Okay. So unlike rock where there's a crater, it's a brittle crater with edges and it remains that way for a long time. With ice, over a long period of time, even though it's very cold, there is some kind of uh, almost kind of gelatinous quality to the ice uh, over long enough time scales.
1: Mm, so it'd be kind of like an ice jelly. Uh,
0: it's kind of like the way glaciers can deform over a long period okay, I've of time. Gotcha. Um, but then there's also a younger ice plane on the surface of Ganymede. So you can move from one dark, scarred plane to another one. And th- these, these younger ice planes are brighter in color with fewer craters. And instead of craters, you'd walk through these deep, grooves known as sulci, each each of these, uh, it's a sulcus, is this groove running along the surface of the planet. It's like a wrinkle in the face of Ganymede.
1: Ah, the sulci of Ganymede. I like
0: it. Yeah, it's beautiful. Uh, and what are those caused by? Well, it's not exactly known, but I think uh, the main idea I've read is that it's caused by internal stresses uh, and tidal forces acting upon the planet, kind of causing wrinkles and perturbations in the crust.
1: OK, well, what are the natives like here?
0: Well, if there are any and there actually is a possibility, it's going to be kind of like what we talked about with Callisto, a similar kind of situations. Because uh, findings announced by NASA in 2015 from the Hubble Space Telescope showed that Ganymede probably has liquid underground oceans sandwiched between icy layers. And they figured huh. this out by looking at, uh, at the Aurorae around Ganymede and figured out that, you know, to see the uh, to see the charged particle displays that we see around the outside of Ganymede, we would probably be expect that we would probably expect that to be caused by liquid oceans under the surface. Uh, and anywhere, of course, that there's liquid water, we kind of have to wonder, is there a possibility? And so that's the idea. And it's another case of subsurface liquid water that may indeed harbor microbial life. Now past observations of Ganymede have been done by the some of the same missions we've uh, talked about mm-hmm. in the past the the usual suspects here and of course Ganymede is one of the potential targets of JUICE uh, that the JUICE is so it's we mentioned earlier but it's part of the the ESA's Cosmic Vision program and the idea is that the probe would launch in 2022 putting it on course to arrive in the Jupiter system around 2030 and it would make observations of Jupiter itself but also Europa Ganymede and Callisto and the main focus on Ganymede would be to learn more about its underground oceans and whether they have the potential to sustain life. But in addition to that, there are some Russian scientists who want to put a lander on Ganymede. Again, this would be to study potential habit- habitability, but this wouldn't just be a flyby. This would be a probe settling down on the oh. surface and, uh, and using various tools to figure out what's going on on the surface of Ganymede and, and what might be going
1: on under the surface. And indeed, that's the tantalizing part, right? To to not only arrive there, but to, but to but to but to actually dig down into the surface and see uh, if if these oceans are really there, and then what it consists of.
0: Yeah, and of course, Ganymede is not the only place where scientists want to drill under some ice and look at habitability concerns. In fact, there's an even better spot to study that, and it's the one that's coming up next on our death spiral into Jupiter.
1: That's right, Europa. And Europa is is quite a big one in our uh, in our consideration of Jovian moons.
0: Yeah, if you read science fiction, I bet this is the most likely one you've read a story about. And it's often, I would say, would you agree that of all the places in the solar system, it's the one where astrobiologists most often talk about the possibility of finding life.
1: Yes, this is definitely the one where where that th- th- has the most excitement around it.
0: Yeah, so Robert, introduce us to this moon we're coming up on now.
1: All right, So while the surface of Europa appears to be a solid sheet of ice, scientists believe this outer shell hides a deep liquid ocean or an ocean of, of ice slush uh, underneath, uh, heated by tidal friction and thermal vents, 62 miles beneath Europa's ice caps. Hmm. So Europa boasts a layered structure like Earth It consists of uh, an iron core, a rock uh, mantle around that core, a thick, soft ice layer, and uh, a thin crust of impure water ice over, again, what is probably a global subsurface water layer.
0: Yeah, and so though Europa is a little bit smaller than Earth's moon, based on the Galileo data, you know, the data from the Galileo Mm -hmm. probe, again, not from Galileo Galilei, uh, scientists think that Europa actually has more water on it than Earth does. Oh wow! Which is pretty incredible because Earth is often known as the water planet. So if you you are the aliens from Signs, it is even worse to try colonizing Europa than Earth.
1: Now that ocean finding, uh, as with Callisto's uh, suspected subwar- subsurface uh, waters, come down to the Galileo spacecraft's measurements, specifically the manner in which Jupiter's magnetic field was dis- is disrupted. Uh, in space around Europa. And the theory is that the field is induced by a large body of electrically conductive salty fluid beneath the surface. Now, if we were to actually move in a little closer, if we were to touch down on Europa, what would we find? Well, the surface is apparently a vast landscape of frozen ice, and it's crisscrossed by long linear fractures. And these are caused by tidal flexing, the, the tidal force caused by Jupiter's gravity. There are very few craters to be seen, blemishing this landscape, as the surface is actually quite young—only yeah. forty to ninety million years old.
0: Which is kind of creepy when you think about it. Yeah, uh, this this ancient planet—we've never been there, and it's got a young surface.
1: Yeah, that's the the first red uh, red flag for any uh, sci-fi visitors, right? Yeah. Uh, Now, you'll also spot reddish-brown materials in some of the fractures and splotchy deposits. And we're not yet sure what those are exactly. It might be magnesium sulfate, maybe sulfuric acid hydrate.
0: You know, I think I've read that recent research suggested that the dark discolorations on Europa's ice crust could be caused by sea salt exposed to radiation. Yet another uh, piece of evidence that the water below the ice crust might be
1: salty. Ah, well, there you go. Uh, now, you'll also come across pits and domes in the ice that suggest uh, that it could be slowly turning over or uh, convecting uh, due to heat from the possible oceans below. Uh-huh. Or maybe they're just the, the domed cathedrals and fighting pit of some weird uh, off-world uh, elder species, right?
0: Now, now wait a second. <laughs> heat coming from the oceans below? Now, that's interesting.
1: Yeah, yeah. That's because if there 's heat that 's one more possibility, not only do we have a salty ocean but there's there 's heat there 's energy there yeah, energy Either, rich yeah energy rich more potential for life. Now, there's also the chaos terrain. This consider. is one of my favorite
0: terms in astronomy. Or is it astronomy? I don't know. Astrogeology.
1: Yeah, uh, planetology? Yeah, I guess so. Yeah. yeah, the chaos terrain. This is a broken, blocky landscape covered in the mysterious uh, reddish material that we uh, mentioned earlier. So it might be spots of geo- geologic activity. Uh, it might be places where the ice has collapsed into lakes in the ice. And it's also possible that we're just merely over-interpreting uh, imperfections in the Galileo spacecraft imagery. Uh-huh. Oh, yes. And as revealed in the, in 2013 Hubble telescope data, Europa is actively venting plumes of water into space. So this means that it is definitely geologically active.
0: Yeah. So it's like a geyser is shooting off of the planet.
1: Yeah. yeah. So, so we've got that to think of, too, like space geysers shooting water into space. So does it have an atmosphere at all? It does. It has a molecular oxygen an O2 atmosphere. Hydrogen floats away from the planet because it's too light and collects in a gas torus around the planet. Less impressive than uh, than the one on Io uh, that we'll discuss, but still pretty pretty interesting nonetheless. Yeah. And as far as size goes for Europa, it's slightly smaller than Earth's moon. So Europa is the smallest of the four Galilean moons. Yes. But size doesn't necessarily matter when it comes to subsurface life. That's right. So if Europa's oceans do exist, and we're pretty sure they do. Yeah. it's I think most scientists agree that that's what's, what's going on under there. Then the tides might also create volcanic or hydrothermal activity on the seafloor, supplying nutrients that could make the ocean sustainable for living things.
0: Yeah, so often when you want to imagine what kind of Alien life could exist on pla- in places other than Earth. It's a good idea to look at extremophiles on Earth. What exists in some of the most difficult conditions on Earth? And one of the things to look at on Earth might be the life that is sustained by hydrothermal vents on the ocean's floor.
1: Yes, we're talking about deep, dark places where really the only font of energy is uh, is is the the, the, the hydrothermal vent that, yeah. is, that is you know pumping out some very high temperatures in an otherwise cold and lightless environment, and uh, and there are there are organisms that have evolved to thrive in that environment. But again, it's, to go back to what you said earlier, we call them extremophiles, but of course, if that were the only place life could exist on a world, would they really be extremophiles? Uh, it kind of depends on how, you know, where you're approaching it from. And, yeah, that's what they're adapted to. Yeah.
0: I mean, I try to put them
1: uh, in, a, in a lush farmland on Earth, and they yeah, might die out. That would be their extreme environment, yeah. Yeah. So there's a lot of, a lot of hope, a lot of excitement, uh, specifically, uh, for Europa because a number of the factors, uh, in the, or in the emergence of life seem to exist there.
0: Yeah. And because of that, Europa is a prime target for future exploration and research. So uh, if, if we've mentioned juice. Mm-hmm.
1: Juice wants to go to Europa, of course. Uh, but what else is going to Europa? Well, NASA is currently putting together the uh, Europa multiple flyby mission for the same time period. That mission is scheduled to launch in 2022, uh, arriving at the Jovian system in 2030. Uh, And 2022 seems to be a big year uh, in general. According to a BBC report from actually earlier this month, NASA is eyeing uh, that year as a potential launch date for a soft landing mission to Europa. Also, ESA scientists are currently considering these five different concepts um, for their own explorations. So, so one is a remote sensing instrument that would go aboard the, um, that American 2022 probe. Uh-huh. Another is a small free flying satellite that would detach from this probe. Uh, another is a small satellite that would detach from the lander's mothership. Another is one or two uh, instru- instrumented projectiles that would drop from the mothership. Projectiles. Huh? Yeah, yeah, and we'll, we'll get to, to the projectile aspect here in just a second. Uh, also, an instrument to ride on the soft lander and, uh, quote, unquote, do science at the surface. Um <laughs> uh, oh, I love it when landers do science. Yeah, I mean, it, it's one of those things where it's, you know, the, we're in early enough stages uh, for figuring out exactly what it would do, but then we also know a number of the the science that it would do, right? Yeah. Uh, But then the the one that really is uh, fascinating is the idea of a penetrator hard lander. So this would be a steel missile loaded with sensors that strikes at uh, 300 uh, miles per second and collects data on the interior. So we're talking some very rugged instruments. They've apparently tested this out a little bit on Earth. Uh, and found that, yes, the the instruments do survive such an impact.
0: Well, that's one of the interesting questions, is what we would do to get to that subsurface ocean, right? Because so you'd have to, if you land on the surface of Europa, if you imagine it has an extremely thick ice crust and the subsurface ocean is underneath that, you'd have to drill down or melt down to get to it. And then once you're down there, how do you get uh, the data back up to the surface?
1: Right. and And we don't want to discount just the journey to any of these moons in general because this is not like the friendliest neighborhood to enter into. You're kind of as we mentioned, you're kind of going into a subsolar system with plenty of uh, of objects zinging around with rings, uh, etc. So, it's uh there are a number of factors there there are a number of hurdles to even getting to your destination.
0: Now, Robert, have you seen the science fiction movie Europa Report? I have not. I
1: I really liked
0: Europa Report. I uh, I would be interested in hearing what you guys out there think, our listeners. Have you seen this movie? I thought it was cool in that it was a modest science fiction movie that uh, did, it did a lot with a little. And one thing I really liked about it is that it was truly a science fiction movie about the exploration of Europa. And in science fiction, I mean um, – A lot of movies that are called science fiction are really just sort of action fantasy,
1: where the instead of having magical weapons, you have technological weapons. But they're still basically the same. The viewer has no idea what you it's just instead of having a religious or supernatural explanation for the magic, it is a vaguely science explanation for the magic.
0: Yeah, exactly. And this movie was not like that. I mean, that it was a science fiction movie in that the plot was inherently about science. Uh, It had a it has scientific plot and a scientific thrust and the characters had a scientific mission that was actually grounded in real things we'd want to learn and the real ways we'd go about trying to learn them. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so uh, I I won't I will try not to spoil anything about the movie, but they, it's a movie about a manned mission uh, or I should say a crewed mission, uh, a mission with a crew going to the surface of Europa and trying to figure out if there's life in the oceans underneath. And so I I give it a thumbs up. Yeah. Does hilarity ensue? No, not really hilarity. Okay. Uh, Maybe some – without spoiling too much, I will say that things don't go exactly to plan.
1: Ah, of course. If they did, it
0: wouldn't be much of a movie. (laughs) Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential –
2: Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic. And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.
4: Top 302 is like no other course. Two 420-foot vertical speedways, three launches. All right, let's talk strategy.
1: All right. Well, at this point, let us sadly leave Europa um, with its mysteries unsolved and continue on to the innermost of the Galilean moons.
0: Yes. Now it is time we're approaching IO. It's spelled two letters, IO. And... That seems to make sense because there's a kind of grinding simplicity (laughs) and beauty and weirdness to this planet. It's it's maybe the strangest and most gorgeous of all of them, and of all of them, it most wants to kill you. (laughs) So Io is Jupiter's innermost Galilean moon. In terms of diameter, it is slightly, but only slightly larger than Earth's moon. It's almost comparable in size. And its orbit keeps it within 422,000 kilometers or 262,000 miles of Jupiter. That's a, not a whole lot farther than the distance between the Earth and its moon, except think about how big Jupiter is. Oh, yeah. Yeah.
1: So what's I it? Joke. Yeah.
0: <laughs> so what's it like on the surface of Io? It's freezing hell and burning hell at the same time. the The ground that you walk on churns up and down like a tsunami as the tides go in and out on the the solid world. Io is a world of extremes. It's, uh, It's the most geologically active object in the solar system, the whole solar system, including Earth, with more than 400 active volcanoes that we know about. Uh, some eruptions of these volcanoes shoot ejecta plumes of 300 kilometers or 186 miles out into space above the surface. If you see some images of these, it, it's incredible. It looks like it looks like there's something else going on behind Io that's being obscured by the planet. But no, you, that's not what it is. You're just seeing in profile plumes of planet-sized proportions exploding off of the surface. And, uh, and so the average temperature on the surface is negative 202 degrees Fahrenheit, or negative 130 degrees Celsius, which is far colder than the coldest natural temperature ever recorded on Earth. That is, unless you're standing near one of Io's hundreds of volcanoes while it's erupting. And here the temperatures are more like 3000 degrees Fahrenheit, or 1649 degrees Celsius. There is an atmosphere, but it's thin and mostly made of the toxic gas sulfur dioxide, which is often associated with volcanic activity even on Earth. So if, you know, you get killed by toxic fumes near a volcano or something like that, you may be breathing sulfur dioxide. And speaking of sulfur compounds, the planet is also going to be covered probably in fields of yellow snow, you don't eat the yellow snow in this case, <laughs> and it's because it's sulfur dioxide snow. So it, the planet, it, it has these eruptions where these particles of sulfur dioxide gas come out and, and go all around the planet. But then because it's so cold, they tend to crystallize and fall down as this sulfur dioxide yellow snow. Uh, so it's just covered in these poisonous golden snow fields. But other than that, it's a good place to visit. No, no, it's also a blasted heath of radiation. So uh, it's the closest to Jupiter and the most exposed to Jupiter's radiation. And then there's also, uh, because Io is connected to Jupiter through a sort of magnetic ring that comes out of Jupiter's magnetosphere, mm-hmm. it also creates what's called a plasma torus, which is just this ring of killer charged particles flowing off of Io and into Jupiter. Uh, and it's it, it's kind of unbelievable. You, you wouldn't want to get near it. You wouldn't want to stand in it. You really don't even want to fly a probe through it. <laughs> and I mentioned earlier the tidal heaving on Io. So on Io, there there are tides, but there are no oceans. It doesn't have water to have tides. It has tides in the ground itself. Oh, wow. Uh, Now, other planets will, too. Tides, of course, you know, being influenced by the gravity of surrounding bodies. There's, There's tidal action acting on Io from Jupiter and from the other moons that are going around Jupiter. But these incredibly powerful gravitational forces, instead of moving water around on the surface, end up moving the ground up and down hundreds of feet. Oh, wow. Now, from what I understand, I think you wouldn't feel this like, you know, waves coming up and down really fast or anything like that. But it does this tidal flexing and stretching of the solid mass of the planet does lead to incredible friction. I mean, think what would happen if you were constantly flexing a rock in and out. Uh, It would get pretty hot. And this is what happens to the interior of Io, leading it to be this burning hellscape within the freezing hellscape. Another crazy fact about Io, Jupiter is going to loom huge in the sky. Uh, the NASA JPL website has a really interesting app that I recommend you try to use. It, it's the a solar system simulator, which lets you simulate looking at one object in the solar system from another object in the solar system at any given time. Uh, and I, I tried this out. I was like, okay, what does it look like looking at Jupiter from Io right mm-hmm. now? And from the surface of IO right now, Jupiter currently takes about it takes up about nineteen point five degrees in the sky. So you know, imagine the degrees from horizon to horizon. you've got about one hundred and eighty degrees. Uh, this so this is about twenty
1: degrees. That's like one ninth of the width of the sky. Yeah, it's crazy to imagine that. I mean, it's it's crazy to imagine even course standing on the surface of Io in your I guess godlike spacesuit that somehow protects you from all of these extreme uh conditions. Somehow
0: then, I I think we're not ever going to be walking on Io.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean you would have to be dealing with like a what, like a, a level a level 1 or level 2 civilization uh just Kardashev like, level. Yeah, yeah. Kardashev level like like some sort of uh like Crazy sci-fi field system, like where it wouldn't even be a physical suit as much as like a crazy energy shield uh, that is somehow protecting you.
0: Unless you're Sean Connery with a shotgun, right? Oh yes. Uh, Is it too early to mention Outland? (laughs) No, it's not. So before we recorded the episode, we were talking about how Robert just rediscovered that the movie Outland, starring Sean Connery, which is essentially High Noon in space.
1: Yeah, it's a space western, Uh, nice and gritty. It's it, it feels like it could take place in the same universe as. Alien, Uh, you know, a lesser film, but it has that kind of grimy, uh, you know, workman's vision of life in the solar system. The
0: opposite of Flash Gordon. Right. (laughs) Uh, But it takes place on Io, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Again, how realistic is that? Seems not very.
1: Yeah, it's been a while since I've seen it, but I do not recall the, um, I do not recall any highly volcanic scenes. I could be wrong on that. I feel like they delivered like a colder vision of Io. Yeah. But it's it's a great film. Very violent, a very very gritty. Yeah. Space drugs, space prostitutes. Sean Connery with a shotgun. Peter Boyle, uh, and some other uh, actors that would go on to to make a name for themselves in the, in the cast as well. Is it kind of like Leviathan in space? Not really. There's no monster. It's like oh, a, it's okay. a very human story. It's it's essentially, you know, it's it's a mining town western scenario, but. On this Jovian. I guess I was just
0: going with the mining outpost aspect of Leviathan. um, Do we need to talk about Leviathan Uh, on this podcast? We can carry on. (laughs)
1: Sorry. I've seen that one more recently. Yeah. Well, it does have a great poster. It does. Fabulous poster. Okay. So back to
0: IO. Given everything we've said so far, freezing hell and burning hell, uh, sulfur dioxide, vicious radiation bath. Mm -hmm. We shouldn't expect this place to have any life at all. Right. Right. Uh, it seems a ridiculous proposition. Also, no liquid water on the surface. Yeah, it sounds uh, like
1: the last place yeah, you could n- find
0: it. No organic molecules ever detected there. I mean, why? Ferocious radiation. So we can definitely rule out the possibility, right? Well, actually, not according to everyone. Huh. And I wonder if this is just an expert uh an astrobiologist trying to emphasize what possibilities are out there. More thought experiment than anything, you it, think? It could be. But from 2010, I found an article by Charles Q. Choi that speaks to Dr. Dirk schultz uh an, astrobiolo- an astrobiologist at Washington State University. And uh, uh, Dr. Schulz-Mekuch said, quote, Life on the surface is all but impossible, but if you go down further into the rocks, it could be intriguing. We shouldn't categorize it as dead right away just because it's so extreme. Uh, so based on uh, this guy's comments, this astrobiologist comments, the article went on to sort of explore what life could be like on Io. You know, if we if we look at Europa and Ganymede, which have water ice, we can get a picture closer to what Io might have looked like billions of years ago, closer to the time of its formation. Uh, radiation from Jupiter probably would have ripped away Io's water within about 10 million years or so, but... Life that evolved on the surface during that period could possibly have retreated underground, surviving in subterranean lava tubes, which could contain moisture and protect the microbial life forms from radiation that's on IO's surface. Uh, what what is impossible up above may not be impossible below. And as we've pointed out before, there are extremophile organisms on Earth that can survive and thrive in lava tubes and even near active geothermal hotspots like geysers. So uh, Schultz-Mekuch comments that the ultimate chances of finding life on Io seem pretty low, but we shouldn't rule it out. And besides, how amazing would that be to find life on this sulfurous golden hell? Uh, It would really change our idea of what's possible for self-replicating organisms in the universe, I think.
1: Indeed. You know, and it also makes me wonder, you know, we've, t- we've been discussing some sci-fi a little bit here, but you're always encountering that idea of, um, of, of either a human or other intelligent civilization seeding life on other worlds. Mm-hmm. And generally, that doesn't take the form of extremophiles. But, but I wonder, like, could we one day reach the point where a human or human-derived civilization would reach a world like like Io, look at it? Determine that there's no even there's no life, even extremophile life. But then, custom make something to survive, and it's like in its in, in its most tolerable um, locations. I don't know. It's fun to think about. Yeah, well,
0: there. I mean, I think you get into, of course, the the ethics questions about seeding life. You know, yeah,
1: do, 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 you'd have to be one hundred percent sure if that's even possible that there is no life there now, and that. Life wasn't, uh, you know, in store for it at some point in the future. Um, So who's to say?
0: But then again, I I think that's kind of weird. Like, I feel this ethical intuition that you shouldn't go about, uh, you know, contaminating other worlds with possible life that could extinguish the life that exists there now. But then again, I really don't feel bad about using alcohol to kill uh, bacteria if you're washing your hands before surgery or something like that. (laughs) Uh, You know, I don't know. Well, you know, the the bacteria was never going to make it to Io anyway, so it's fine. I guess so. Alien bacteria just has so many more rights than Earth bacteria. It does. Okay, so future missions to Io. Uh, one would be the Io Volcano Observer, one, one proposed future mission at least. We don't know. But uh, the, the proposed future mission to Io would be this observer, primarily the work of the planetary geologist Alfred McEwen. And this would be a probe that goes into orbit around Jupiter and observes Io close up over the course of at least nine flybys over two years. And this would be studying Io's temperature, its volcanic activity, and its surface composition. And if the proposed mission is accepted, it's going to launch by around 2021. So it seems like in the early 2020s, there's going to be a lot of... Uh potential mm-hmm. Jupiter missions launching.
1: That has got to be a—I mean, we've already discussed the volcanic eruptions that uh, blast out into into space yeah. off of Io, so that would seem—it would seem like that would be a difficult orbit to maintain. And maybe uh, that's part of the gamble, like how—
0: Well, I mean, I guess the question would be exactly how close is it getting to Io if it's going to be orbiting Jupiter. Uh, the, I think I read something like that the closest point it would ever get to Io would be around 200 kilometers away. Okay. Uh, which is—I mean, that's pretty close. Mm-hmm uh but the, the bigger question i think much more than the geologic activity is just the radiation i mean yeah. even even non organic you know just our instruments at that point are going to be subject to extreme radiation and so it would have to be a hardy kind of probe to survive if anything were to actually land on Io, it would have to be a flying fallout shelter. As we've mentioned, the radiation's fierce and it has damaged instruments on probes in the past, right? Yes. I mean, that's how that's how
1: potent the radiation uh, of Io is.
0: One last thing I wanted to add about Io coming from the angle of exotheology. Uh, <laughs> exo-theology. exotheology. Yeah, yeah. The religion, uh, space religion. Oh, well, this is a this is a
1: topic I, I love.
0: Yeah, of course. I love it too. And uh we should add that we keep using the hell analogy for IO just merely for descriptive reasons. Right. To give you an image to map it onto in your brain, but there's actually at least one theologian mm-hmm. who exists who believes hell can be found in the solar system. Uh he is a guy named uh Michael Santini and he's a reverend who he self-published a book that argues that the Christian hell is literally to be found on the planet Venus. Huh? And I I don't know how many people he's managed to convince of this. This is obviously not a standard Christian belief. This is his idea, um, but I wonder why not Io instead? Io seems like an even better candidate.
1: Yeah, I mean you have it it it, fl- it flows perfectly with Dante's vision, right? Because you have both the, the hot region, the hot regions, the the cold regions. It's, yeah, it's. It's perfect. All you need is uh Satan there up to his waist. And it yeah, and it matches with our journey of
0: descent, right? Yeah, yeah. You know, as we've gone closer and closer into the planet, which reminds me, now that we've reached the end of our journey, we're getting very close to Jupiter itself. Yeah. And our our little terrarium capsule is uh withering a little bit withstanding the uh inner radiation of the Jovian system. I wonder what's gonna happen. As we descend into the gas,
1: I don't know. We're descending into a into a massive gas world of storms and poison and uh, and eventually a, a rocky core uh, where the pressure and the is just insane. Um, I'm pretty sure
0: we'll be obliterated before we reach the rocky core.
1: Oh, yes. Yes, certainly. I, I doubt we'll ever reach the rocky core, but uh, maybe there is no rocky core. Maybe the rocky core is all in your mind. Well, the important thing is we made it this far. I mean, we were ordered to jettison the dome a while back. Uh, we held on this long. Everything got to survive there just a little bit longer. So we can we can play one last game of uh, checkers or cards with the uh, robots and uh, just go out on a high note.
0: Well, one thing I should have mentioned to you as we were going, but I didn't because I was afraid, was that... At each moon we passed along the way, I jettisoned off a capsule of Earth life, unethically seeding these planets and potentially (laughs) contaminating them uh, for all future research. But maybe these little life forms will take
1: hold. Yeah. Well, hey, that's better than nothing, right? So let's hope something uh, takes root. All right. So there you have it. An exploration of the Galilean moons. Uh, Just uh, the, the four greatest of the Jovian moons in general, but each one a, a fascinating world. And, uh, and the cool thing, too, is that even uh, over the course of the next year or so, we're hopefully going to learn more and more about these these places.
0: Yeah, so we want to thank you for joining us on our journey through this solar system within a solar system, the uh, the gas giant and its wonderful sphere of influence.
1: Indeed. And if you want to see images of some of these moons... Uh, as well as uh, explore some links out to to additional data about them. Be sure to check out the landing page for this episode at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Uh that's the mothership that's where you'll find all the podcast episodes, you'll find blog posts uh, you'll find galleries, lists, uh, videos, links out to our social media accounts, such as Facebook and Twitter. We're Blow the Mind on both of those. Uh, we also have uh, Tumblr and Instagram accounts, if that is your jam. And if you want to get in touch with us with your
0: favorite fact about Jupiter or its moons, or you want to let us know what you think the most interesting object in the solar system is, or where you think we're most likely to find life outside of Earth, you can email us at BlowTheMind at HowStuffWorks.com.